Welcome to Treasure Valley Podcast. I'm your host, Chuck. Treasure Valley Podcast is a podcast that covers issues, ideas, topics, and events directly related to the Treasure Valley here in Idaho, but also indirectly related to the Treasure Valley. Wherever you're listening, I think you'll find the topics interesting, relevant, entertaining, or epiphanizing. Today's episode is brought to you by your brain, that organ that organizes those loosely connected series of events your body has been through into narrative form so you can boast about the cool parts to all your friends while conveniently leaving out anything embarrassing or hypocritical. That organ that takes the sum total of all of the experiences and knowledge you have gained and attempts to make future predictions for you and for others, sometimes boldly, sometimes timidly, but it never fails to make the next thoughtful move to get you out of a jam or preach to your miserable friend. But before we talk about your brain, let's start out with stinky stuff. I'm a teacher, and oftentimes I experience odd smells in my classroom. There's one malodorous instance in particular that I would like to share with you today because it illustrates the ineffectiveness of simplistic thinking. In this case, simplistic binary thinking. If you're unfamiliar, binary thinking is a way of lazily sorting complicated situations into two simple sides. Good or bad. Black or white. Hot dog or not hot dog. I mean, we could sort everything in the world into the categories of hot dog and not hot dog, but I don't think that would be very useful. Silicon Valley was such a good show. Anyway, on this specific smelly day, a warm day in August, I entered my classroom after lunch and noticed a strange smell. But because I've developed a tolerance to stink and students would be storming in from recess in a matter of moments, I postponed the investigation. When all the kids were seated at their desks with their notebooks, I walked to the front of the class to raise a pull-down map of the United States covering the whiteboard. It revealed a mess of marker smears. I made a joke at the expense of the student who was supposed to clean the whiteboard over his lunch break and grabbed an eraser to do the job myself. The eraser only made the smears worse. And as I swiped, it felt as though the eraser was sliding on some sort of grease. I flipped the eraser over, suspecting it was the problem, only to find it was covered in white film. I grabbed a clean eraser, repeated the process to find out the goop was all over the whiteboard. I was baffled. I had a chat with a kid in charge of whiteboard cleaning to find out what happened to this essential piece of the classroom over lunch. Well, it turns out this kid did come in on his lunch break to clean the whiteboard, but there wasn't any Expo cleaner left, so the kiddo decided to use Clorox wipes instead. Cleaner is cleaner, right? After everything was wiped down, he went to write the day and date on the top of the board, which is part of the procedure, and upon making a mistake... He learned that the eraser now only smeared the marks. In case you're unaware, whiteboards have a surface that is very sensitive to chemical cleaners. You should only clean with water or designated solutions. After several more marks and unsuccessful attempts at erasing them, this young lad decided to try to fix the situation by going into his lunchbox and grabbing several packets of mayo. Mayo is white and greasy. Whiteboards are white and fairly slick. This should fix it. You can probably see where this went. There were several attempts to smear mayo on the whiteboard and more attempts to write and erase, which culminated in a stinky mess covering a now non-functional classroom centerpiece. That's when he pulled down the map to cover up his mistake. I thought the entire situation was pretty hilarious. Plus, it taught an important life lesson to 30 kids for the cost of one whiteboard. Not everything falls into neat black and white categories. In this case, a white condiment is not a substitute for a white board. Yes, both things are white, but they are not the least bit interchangeable. We all have this tendency to take the shortcuts of binary reasoning. And when we have limited experience, our simplistic solutions can have a devastating effect. 
We all do this. It may not be as obvious as confusing mayonnaise with whiteboard, but it can still lead to some ill-informed choices. The solution to overly simplistic thinking is Bayesian reasoning. What is Bayesian reasoning, you might ask? Well, it's the application of statistical thinking when predicting outcomes. In the whiteboard story I just shared, my poor student lacked prior knowledge of white objects. Maybe he had only experienced a handful of white objects in his lifetime and therefore believed that there was a good chance that mayonnaise and whiteboards had the same physical properties. Thomas Bayes, a man who was enamored with statistics in the 18th century, realized that prior knowledge is extremely important. And if you have a good base of prior knowledge, or today what we call data, you can calculate increasingly accurate outcomes. His theorem, called Bayes' theorem, was published after his death. His math was a bit more complicated than simply, if you flip a coin, there's a 50% chance it will land on heads. Let me illustrate with medical testing, which shows why it's so important to get a second opinion. Also, trigger warning. This example will show how Donald Trump was technically correct in one of his stances during the coronavirus pandemic. He did make misleading statements, but let's talk about the math and forget about politics for one moment. To do these counterintuitive statistical calculations, let's make up a disease. How about we pretend there's a disease in the human population called sudden exploding head syndrome? The prevalence of sudden exploding head syndrome is about 1% of the population. That is, one out of every 100 people has the disease. Fortunately, there's a life-saving medication that will prevent your head from exploding. But only if you have the disease. If you take the medicine and you don't have sudden exploding head syndrome, the medicine will cause your head to explode. So for this hypothetical world, two negatives make a positive, just like this one. Fortunately, there's a test for this fatal disease that is 98% accurate. Unfortunately, the test is the only way to find out if you have it. There are no symptoms until it's too late. You were just tested and tested positive for the disease. Should you take the life-saving anti-exploding head medicine? Clearly you should, right? 98% is really accurate. Well, actually, the answer is no, because taking the medicine would most likely cause your head to explode. You see, there's actually a 67% chance the medicine will kill you and a 33% chance that it will save your life. The math here isn't too complicated. Keep in mind that we need to take the prevalence of the disease into account along with the accuracy of the testing. Let me explain. The prevalence of sudden exploding head syndrome is 1%. If we randomly grab 10,000 people from the population, we would likely have about 100 sick individuals. 100 is 1% of 10,000. Now, let's run that 98% accurate test on those 100 sick people. 98 of them will correctly test positive, and two will get good news only to be suddenly surprised at some point in the future. So that's what the results would look like just for the positive patients. Now, let's look at those not in danger of a rupturing cranium. Of the 10,000 people tested, 9,900 of them will not have sudden exploding head syndrome. When we test all of those 9,900 people, 98% will correctly come back negative, which 98% of 9,900 is 9,702. But 2% of those will incorrectly come back positive, which means of the 9,900 healthy people, 198 of them will erroneously be diagnosed with exploding head syndrome. Do you see where I'm going here? Of all the 10,000 tests, 296 came back positive. And out of those 296 positive tests, only 98 of them actually have the disease, which means 
If your test was positive, you still only have a one in three chance of truly being sick. With those odds, I'd want another quick test before I take any medicine that may make my head explode. Hopefully you see the importance of a second opinion and also why it can be dangerous to randomly screen people for illnesses. That first round could be a false positive and the odds of a positive being false are pretty high unless the test is really accurate. Back to COVID. Therefore, over the summer when Trump was claiming that additional testing was leading to additional positives, he was technically correct. However, when it comes to COVID PCR tests, it is thought that the accuracy for false positives is close to zero, whereas the false negatives are much higher because the test isn't sensitive enough to identify lower concentrations of the virus. Based on that information, which you can confirm at health.harvard.edu, it is more likely that the number of COVID positives is higher than what is being reported due to a higher prevalence of false negatives versus false positives. Getting these predictive numbers takes a lot of research and experiments repeated over and over again to ensure accuracy. This is why I trust experts. You can see why Pfizer vaccine trials required over 40,000 participants, of which only half received the vaccine, because you still need to account for placebo. I would also like to note that the severe reactions to the vaccine were about the same as those of the placebo group. So vaccine participants that had negative reactions were likely experiencing a nocebo effect, which is the bad equivalent of a placebo effect. They believed they were going to have a bad experience, therefore they did. In spite of all the information and data available to us to make increasingly accurate predictions about reality, it's hard to find debates based on facts because they're uninteresting. More often, it's easier to fall into binary stances or accuse others of binary stances when we disagree. It sorts us into teams and makes things exciting. Think of these statements, which I'm certain you've seen represented in slightly more complex terms in the media or in memes. Socialism is bad. Capitalism is bad. Republicans hate you. Democrats hate you. It's even more fun to add another dimension because then the irrationality gets more direct and accusatory. For example, universal basic income is socialism. You are in favor of UBI. Therefore, you hate private industry. A higher minimum wage would increase paychecks for some poor people. You are against increasing minimum wage. Therefore, you hate poor people. Or finally, you yelled at my dog. You hate dogs. The socialism moniker really irritates me. We live in a country where our kids are educated via government funding. We already live under socialism in the area of education. It's possible to support private industry as a means of efficiency and support government funds being used as insurance to assist endeavors that private industry may not find profitable, but will benefit the society on the macro level as a whole. Think vaccines, education, scientific studies, NASA. I mean, could you imagine living today without Tang? You can also disagree with minimum wage increases and not hate poor people. Maybe it would personally cause you to have to fire employees in your tiny local business. Walmart, Target, McDonald's, and the like have the dough to fork over that kind of cash. But where does that leave the small local businesses that want to hire a 16-year-old to work after school? And finally, I can yell at your dog and not hate all dogs. Maybe you shouldn't leave the poor thing out so late at night in freezing weather. Then I wouldn't have to yell out my window just before I go to bed in hopes of getting that thing to shut up so I can get some sleep. It's easy to make these illogical leaps in the heat of the moment, especially when you want to get someone. Nail them for being hypocritical. But maybe you just don't know what that person knows. Maybe your solitary experience and limited knowledge doesn't expand into the frontier you're hypothesizing about. I once had a conversation about science with someone who had much more education than myself. 
She was a PhD student in the field of ecology. I told her I have a bachelor's of science in psychology. She told me that psychology is not a science. That statement irritated me. Through our conversation, I learned that her idea of science had to do with certainty. Biology, chemistry, physics are much more predictable. In psychology, a study might be meaningful when you find 60% of participants react to some certain thing in a certain way. It's hard to get 100% in psychology. That was her beef. I consider the application of the scientific method to any field of science. Even if we don't get perfect results, we still learn. So why discredit subtle differences? That was my stance anyway. But eventually, I realized that regardless of the points I made, her position was correct. Because the more educated someone is, the smarter they are. And she had more education than me, so she must be smarter. After all, when you try to look at the soft sciences from the perspective of a hard scientist, to an ecologist, a psychologist must look like a greasy-fingered child rubbing mayonnaise all over a whiteboard. Thanks for listening to Treasure Valley Podcast. Be sure to like and share this podcast with your friends and family members. I'd also like to note the story that I told at the beginning of this podcast wasn't quite true. Some of the details were changed. I never had a student smear mayonnaise on a whiteboard. It was actually a coworker, but I changed the confused individual to a child because I thought that would be more believable than a 38-year-old man rubbing mayonnaise all over a whiteboard to try to avoid getting into trouble.